0: Hello and welcome into the Floor Slab Podcast, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Sean, here to break down another great weekend of college football. Uh, we had a couple big upsets in the Big Ten in Week 7. I'll recap that and all the main Big Ten action we saw last week, give you the game of the week. Um, I also have a couple thoughts on teams outside of the Big Ten. Um have thoughts on Washington, why, despite their big win against Oregon, I have some reservations about them being a legitimate national championship contender. I'll touch on I guess try to figure out why Georgia is still the number one team in the country in the AP and coaches poll because it's still bewildering to me and then we'll get into previewing a great week eight of action obviously we have Ohio State Penn State headlining the weekend I'll give uh spend some good amount of time there previewing that game giving you the keys to both teams um, success and give you my prediction as well as my five Big Ten betting locks so we're going to get into all the Big Ten action this weekend got a loaded episode ahead of ourselves so As always, won't waste any more time. Gonna dive right into it. This is the Floor Slap Podcast. Alright, so the first game I want to talk about is the game that um, I deemed as the game of the week in the Big Ten, um, and a game that many people, including myself, thought would end up deciding the Big Ten West champion. That was Iowa visiting Wisconsin, and the game was just as ugly as anyone could have imagined. Iowa ended up getting a big upset win on the road, 15-6, to um, and I'll start off on the Wisconsin side of things, and I'll just be frank to start things off, Wisconsin probably wins this game. If Tanner Mordecai doesn't get hurt in that first half, he was playing really well to start. He had a few really impressive throws, um, including a deep shot on their first drive to get him into scoring territory, Um, and it seemed like Wisconsin came into this game really ready to challenge the Iowa defense and be aggressive, um, and not just kind of play into their hand of conservative football. They came out ready to throw, and early on it seemed like, you know, despite some Unsuccessful scoring drives. It kind of seemed like Wisconsin was, you know, ready to maybe put up some points on this Iowa defense. Um, but once Tana Mordecai went out, I think they crossed the line of being aggressive to being a little bit reckless. And I think a perfect example of this was on the first drive. Um, you know, like I said, they took a deep shot on the first drive. They went forward on fourth and six and converted that. Um, and then they faced another fourth down and one. Um, so, you know, an area that would, uh, be a chip shot field goal. And so they decided to go for it instead of getting that easy three points. And this is a great red zone defense that IO was going up against. Um, so there was no guarantee, even if they did get that fourth down conversion, that they would have gotten a touchdown, even if they got that first down. Um, and, you know, they had a great first drive uh, to start things off. And, you know, going into this game, that points are at a premium. And, you know, I, during the game, was saying, why aren't you taking the points? Um, and they elected not to, and it backfired because, will turn them over and snatch momentum really early on in that game. Um, and then when Tanner Mordecai went down, it doesn't really seem like they changed their strategy at all, like I said before. They were still throwing a lot on first down, and it was clear early on that Braden Locke was not ready to carry this offense with his arm. Um, and it wasn't like Wisconsin was really struggling that much to run the ball. I mean, they still ran for over 100 yards on the day, but Braylon Allen was averaging 4.8 yards per carry. The problem was he only had 18 carries. As soon as Tanner Mordecai went down, Braylon Allen should have been the focal point of this offense, I get. Maybe they didn't plan for that this weekend, because like I said, it seemed like they wanted to come out and be a little bit more aggressive, but you, as a coaching staff, you have to be able to pivot, especially in a game that means this much, where it's pretty much do or die as far as your preseason hopes of get, winning the Big Ten West and playing for a Big Ten championship. Um, I don't see a reason why Bray, Braylon Allen shouldn't have hit 30 carries in that game, Um, even 35 carries. like. It, They clearly made a decision to let Locke go, I mean, come in and pretend like he was Tanner Mordecai, drop, and drop back against this Iowa defense. And that cost them the game more than anything. And like, listen, I get that Luke Fickle is trying to modernize this Wisconsin team, doing pretty much what I feel like Iowa needs to be doing, which is like open up the offense a little bit more. Um, and Fickle's trying to build them to compete for national championships, not just big champion, big 10 championships. And that's a whole part of why he's instituting this change. Um, and I totally understand that, but at the same time, you don't need to make this change in one season. So if I'm a Wisconsin fan, I'm pissed at Luke Fickle and Phil Longo right now, um, because this defense did their job. They gave up 68 yards in the second half. They forced back-to-back punts when they needed to get the ball back and go down and score. Um, but then, you know, when the offense did get the ball back, they would come out, throw the ball on first down, not do anything to get, the, get ahead of the chains and get the chains moving, um... They really rarely found themselves ahead of the chains during the game after, I mean, after first down, that is. Um, and that's a big reason why they went two for 17 on third down. I mean, let me, let me say that again. Wisconsin went two for 17 on third down. And a lot of it was because of their play calling on first and second down. Their play calling put them in a lot of third and passing down situations, which, you know, with Tana Mordecai, you have a chance of converting, but once he went down, you have Braden Locke in the game. You have virtually no chance of converting third and longs with Braden Locke against this Iowa defense. And it also seemed like the, the few number of third and shorts they managed to find themselves in were then thrown off by, by false starts and silly mistakes. Um, so it was definitely a frustrating game because it was a winnable game. Even after Tana Mordecai went down, this game was winnable for Wisconsin. And it just seemed like they were trying way too hard to move away from what wisconsin's identity has been for so long and that's you know three yards in a cloud of dust follow your all-american caliber running back um and they didn't do that and you know if i'm a wisconsin fan that's why i'm frustrated because this is a game you could have won and they didn't you know that being said they're not out of the big 10 west race um you know, you, you know, Iowa's six and one right now, despite all of their offensive woes, despite all of their injuries. You gotta figure they probably have another loss or two in them coming down this stretch. Like, they just aren't that much better than the rest of the Big Ten West. Um, you know, I could be wrong, but, you know, they're certainly not out of the Big Ten West race. But, you know, Tana Mordecai is out for the foreseeable future. And, I think Luke Fickle is going to have to prove why he was brought in here because anything under nine regular season wins seems like it's going to be a massive disappointment for this Wisconsin fan base given the preseason expectations and given what Luke Fickle has been talking about at all, uh, all this whole season, that this Wisconsin team is talented enough to compete for championships, but they're not playing like it. So, I mean, to salvage this season, Luke Fickle is going to have to prove why they brought him here and the kind of impact he can have on this program. Um, And then shifting to Iowa, so um, first and foremost, I'd like to apologize to Hawkeye Nation because I'm mean, not really because of what I said about this offense and their coaching staff that all still stands up. But I apologize for thinking that having the worst offense in the nation again um, would keep you out of the Big Ten West race because you know I talk so much in these past weeks about how important it is to find your identity and stick to that as a team. And you know on the Wisconsin's end, they have an identity crisis because they're trying to be something that they... Aren't by leaning on something that's not their by by leaning on something that's not their strength in throwing the ball so much. Meanwhile, Iowa knows exactly who they are. They always have. They've always had their identity. And even if part of that identity is we don't play offense, it still gets the job done. And it's still enough to go win the Big Ten West, which is um, really what Iowa fans are hoping for. Um, you know, the defense got off to a bit of a slow start at the beginning of the season, which can be expected given, given the turnover they had in the back end of that defense and at linebacker. But they're back to being that same game-changing, ball-hawking, opportunistic defense. Um, we knew that coming in, but it's also about time that we talk about this special teams unit, because the, the special teams, just as much of the defense, is keeping Iowa in games and winning them games. Um because I think field position, more than anything, got Hawk- the Hawkeyes this upset. I talked about it was Wisconsin's play calling that kind of lost them the game, but it was Iowa's special teams that won them the game. Um, and honestly, I think it's about time we'd start talking about Iowa's punter, Tory Taylor, in the Heisman conversation. Not that He would ever really win it. And not that I would ever give him a first place vote if I, first place vote if I had, um, a vote in the Heisman, but I'd be willing to give him a third place vote if Iowa runs the table and goes 11 and one, because he's just such a weapon. Clearly the best punter in the country. And there's not a punter in the country that means more to their team than Tory Taylor does. And I think he's the only punter I can think of in recent history, um, that is having this kind of impact on a football team. Wisconsin was pinned inside their own 10 four times on Saturday, and that includes three straight times to start the third quarter that they started inside their own 10-yard line. And that really took all the momentum away from Wisconsin, if any, that they had, and gave it to Iowa, that field position advantage that they held for pretty much the entire second half. On average, Wisconsin was starting at their own 20-yard line. I mean, they were forced time and time again to go the length of the field in order to score. And it was defense, you know, they gave up some yards. Wisconsin was able to move the ball with varying se- success throughout the game. Um, but the Hawkeye defense never broke. They never let uh, Wisconsin into the end zone. And they did their job. I mean, this, don't get me wrong. This Iowa offense is still very, very bad. And, you know, I know there's kind of a, a headline going around that uh, Iowa's college football playoff chances are still alive. And yeah, that's true. Even if somehow, some way they got into the playoff, this offense would not allow them to contend with any of the real threats in this country. And frankly, I, I feel like it, I'm not reaching by saying that if, if Iowa does win the Big Ten West, they're going to get waxed by whoever the Big Ten East champion is. Um, but, you know, I, I think with Deacon Hill at quarterback, they really don't have a chance at upsetting that Big Ten East champion. I mean, he went 6-14 of 14 for 37 yards against Wisconsin. And Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State all have much, much better defenses than Wisconsin. Um, but at the very least, this offensive line for Iowa is starting to play better. And I don't think there are many teams in college football who could lose their top two running backs and then still have a veteran like LaShawn Williams to hand the ball off to. I mean... Um, you know, he had that incredible 82-yard run, and even outside of that, he managed a semi-respectable 3.8 yards per carry. Like, he was consistently getting positive yardage for this team, and unlike Wisconsin, helping Iowa stay ahead of the chains and put them into more third and manageable situations. Um, so, you know, say what you want about their offense. I certainly have, but Iowa is built to win the Big Ten West with their defense and their special teams, and that's what Kirk Ferentz is here to do. Um, the only shame is knowing that we may never see Iowa try to really evolve this offense to become not just a Big 10 title contender but a true national threat. And that's where I think Iowa was capable of doing it just seems like Kirk Ferentz is you know sticking to his guns and good for him because it's working. I mean, he's staring at another double-digit win season, um greatest coach in Iowa history. It's hard for me to sit here in my ivory tower and um you know explain all the things that he's doing wrong offensively, but um, Iowa is who we thought they were. They're the best team in the Big Ten West. They control their own destiny, and I don't see a reason why they shouldn't emerge from this, um, division after a big win against, uh, Wisconsin. So, good for Iowa. I'm sorry what I said about your offense, even though it's true, but, you know, despite these offensive woes, despite being dead last in the country in total offense, they're, they're in the driver's seat in the Big Ten West. So, um, you know, good on them. No, they'll keep it going. Even it's ugly to watch them play. Um, but at the same time, almost beautiful. It's funny. Next, I'm going to talk about the Maryland, Illinois game. Illinois finally got, you know, their first big win of the season, uh, 27, 24. They won at Maryland on a walk-off field goal. Um, and I'll start off on the positive note with Illinois. Um, first off, where the hell has this been? <laughs> I mean, cause this is exactly the team I was expecting to see coming into 2023. Um, I think a lot of it changed offensively, because they finally made a, a dedicated effort to run the ball. They weren't terribly effective, but they were consistently gaining positive yardage on the ground, which is more than you can say for the majority of their games, especially their last one against Nebraska. I mean, they were, they were able to move the ball on the ground. And in doing so, they took so much pressure off of Luke Altmaier's shoulders. Because I've been saying this all season, he's a talented kid, but he's a young quarterback who's been asked to do way too much for this offense. Um, but now they ran a run-first approach and kept it going for all four quarters. They did not waver from that philosophy, and that allowed Luke Altmaier to be so much more efficient on offense. Um, it allowed the defense to be, or it made the defense be, a little bit more on their heels, and it gave Luke Altmaier the time to go find those one-on-one matchups with his receivers. Because he does, I mean, Illinois has some of the most underrated receivers in the country. Pat Bryant, Casey Washington, and Isaiah Williams all played really well, all made... At least one big play throughout the game. Um, you know, part of it was a Maryland defensive front that, um, you know, they made some big plays, but also through a lot of the game, they seemed either worn out or uninspired, um, which could make sense given how much they gave in that game against Ohio State last weekend. Um, but Illinois' offensive line did play much better, which allowed this all to happen, which allowed the run game to get some momentum, which then allowed um, the pressure to get off of Luke Altmaier. And then defensively, I thought they played an outstanding game. I mean, their corners had been getting burned all season long. um, But on Saturday, they were in generally really good position. I mean, Talia... You know, he generally made good decisions and had some spectacular throws, which is to be expected. But I felt like Illinois had their own on a lot of, um, Talia's big touchdown throws. I mean, Illinois was in good position. They just have the receivers. I mean, you saw it against Ohio State. They have the receivers to go one on one with just about any cornerback in the country and make a few big plays. And that's exactly what they did. But, um, they were consistently in good position on pass defense and they didn't give up any big runs on the ground either. Um, You know, they forced Maryland to either be patient and go on, you know, 15 play drives, um, you know, running the ball and dinking and dunking down the field. Um, That was either choice one that they gave Maryland, or they were making Maryland beat them consistently through the air. And Mike Loxley elected for the latter, and Illinois was up for the challenge. Um, Like I said, Talia made some really big throws, but um, they just weren't able to consistently get on the scoreboard. And for Illinois, I mean, I think this is still a team that can, t- can contend in the West. Um, cause they still have, they play Wisconsin this weekend. They have Iowa later on the schedule. And those are the two teams you really got to beat if you want to set yourself up to be in Indianapolis this season. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> despite what I've said about them all season long, Illinois is not dead yet in this Big Ten West race. Um, and this game, I think was also just a reminder that you know, as ugly as the Big Ten race, Big Ten West race will be and, you know, currently is, it's going to be equally entertaining because, you know, like I said, it seems like Iowa's the clear favorite. They have all the cards in their favor to go win the Big Ten West. Um, but any of these teams could, could upset them and go, go take that, um, Big Ten title berth from them. So, you know, something tells me that Iowa isn't running the table. They're going to stub their foot against someone and that's just going to throw a huge wrench in, in this Big Ten West race. So it's all ugly football. None of these games are particularly pretty. But it's going to be an entertaining race, and I can't wait to see who emerges from it. Um, and then pivoting to, to Maryland, though, I mean, what a tremendous letdown. I had such high expectations for Maryland coming into this season, and they lived up to every single one. And then you, they finally gave you that classic Maryland letdown game that any season where they have expectations and are playing well, they seem to have. Um, and it was just, yeah, like I said, huge letdown, especially after last week. You know, they gave... I feel like they gave Ohio state everything they could handle in that first half. And I feel like they gained a lot of national respect for how they challenged Ohio state. Um, but then they come out and lay an egg against what was one of the big 10's worst teams. Um, and I put a lot of this game on their offensive philosophy coming into the game more than anything. Like I mentioned before, um, just with them electing to let Talia go ball out and win the game for them throwing the ball, it really seemed like they abandoned the run game early. I mean, they've been struggling to run the ball consistently all year. That's been a problem with Maryland. Um, and, they weren't tremendous against Illinois for the majority of the game. They weren't, like I said, they weren't getting any huge runs. But Roman Henry was averaging nearly six yards a carry. Um, I think this was the game to finally make a, a dedicated effort to grind out some yards on the ground, like Illinois was doing. They made a dedicated effort to run the ball, and Maryland very well could have done the same thing with even more success than Illinois had. Um, you know, This was the game to do it and establish yourself as a more balanced offense and finally find you know, an identity running the ball. Instead, they threw the ball 40 times to just 29 rushes, and I think that's what lost them the game. Um, you know, it wasn't like they were down by multiple possessions for a lot of the game and had to score in bunches to keep up. It's not like the game script forces, forced them to throw the ball so much. Maryland was within a touchdown for all but four minutes of this game, and still they elected to not really run the ball very much. Um, like I said, Talia made some nice plays and played pretty well. He kept them. He was really what kept him in the game. He certainly didn't lose them the game, but if I'm a Maryland fan, I, I'd like to know what the coaching staff's hesitancy is to run the ball. I mean, Roman Hemby is a great running back. He was you know freshman All-American last year. Maryland, use him. <laughs> use Roman Hemby. Um, you know, they can still have a great season ahead of them. Like this, this, um, this loss doesn't erase everything they've done to this point. Um, and I think if they play a complete you know, four-quarter game, mistake-free game, I think they're still capable of upsetting Penn State or Michigan at home, if they get a few bounces their way, probably. Um, but the problem is, I just don't think Maryland is capable of playing a complete mistake-free game. Um, I think a great example of this came in the last few minutes of the first half. So, you know, as the second quarter kind of trickled down, it seemed like Maryland had seized all the momentum. You know, a- Illinois went up early, but um, Maryland ended up getting the lead back. They're up 14-7, and they're driving to close out the half. They're inside three minutes. They convert a, th- uh, a third down to then get the ball inside the Illinois 30. So, you know, if you're a Maryland fan on that play, you're thinking, great, we can go up 21-7 to at halftime and, you know, really just gain control of this game. But... On that play that they converted the third down, Caden Prather uh, fumbles the ball, Illinois recovers, and then on Illinois' ensuing drive, Maryland gives up two 15-yard penalties and a fourth down conversion uh, to allow Illinois to score and go into halftime tied at 14. And from there, Maryland never really recovered. They never got momentum back, and it was just All in all, a disappointing performance by Maryland because, you know, hats off to Illinois for coming out with a different energy, a different philosophy, and executing like the team I thought they were coming into the season. But at the same time, um, Maryland still is the better football team, the more talented roster, I thought the better coach team. Um, So it was just a disappointing performance by Maryland. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of on me for putting them on a pedestal. Uh, I, Given their history, I, I shouldn't be so surprised that they would drop a game like this. So, you know, they have everything ahead of themselves. They can still hit 10 wins this season. Um, it's, granted, it's going to be a lot more difficult with this loss now, but um, just a tremendous letdown for Maryland. And I'm, I'm disappointed for their fans because I expected a lot, a lot more from Michael Oxley and this team going to talk about one last game from week seven. I know we had a few other games around the big 10, but like I said, loaded slate this weekend to preview. So for the sake of time, going to get right into our big 10 game of the week from week seven, that was Michigan state on the road against Rutgers. Um, it was a sloppy, really ugly game for the majority of the game. A lot of turnovers, a lot of mistakes. It was, you know, Terrible weather, torrential downpour for the majority of the game. But if you managed to somehow stick through all four quarters in that game, um, you saw a spectacular end and a great comeback from Rutgers. Uh, so really to start, the game was really competitive from both ends. Um, Gavin Wimset in particular started off hot for Rutgers. He was six of eight for 93 yards in that first quarter. Um, Michigan State was up seven six going into, um, early in the second quarter, but then the game got sloppy really fast um Rutgers though their defense did its job in fact after they missed a field goal Tyreen Powell had a huge hit on Jalen Berger on a fourth down stop that would have given the Rutgers the ball back but they ended up reviewing that hit and it was targeting definitely a questionable call I'm not going to get into it because I mean who who knows what targeting is at this point I mean that's a whole whole other episode to go into targeting by itself um but then anyway Michigan State ends up getting the ball back you know again a huge shift in momentum there but then Defense steps up, a few plays later, forces a fumble. Um, but then Gavin Wimsett, you know, the ugly starts to, to rear its head. He throws an interception that was a little high, but went off the receiver's hands. But then defense comes right back out, forces a three and out, gets Rutgers the ball back. But then Rutgers muffs the punt. And that sets up a Michigan State touchdown. And then Rutgers goes down, tries to score more before halftime. Gavin Wimsett threw, throws another interception. And this one, the first one wasn't entirely on him, should have been caught. This interception was just a horrible overthrow into traffic on a pass that should never have been uh, thrown. That leads to a Michigan State field goal. Spartans were up 17-6 at half. Um, and really, I mean, the first half into the third quarter, Rutgers never really seemed overmatched. They just kept hurting themselves. Um, their offense really was shut down in the third quarter, and Michigan State ended up bleeding 24-6 going into the fourth quarter. Seemed wrapped up. Um, it kind of looked like same old Rutgers who just kept Beating themselves. Meanwhile, maybe it looked like a a new stone had been turned for Michigan State. They came out after the bye week with a totally different energy, and it looked like maybe this is a game that could catapult them back to you know, obviously not being a Big Ten East contender, obviously not challenging Ohio State, Michigan, or Penn State, but getting to a bowl game and just you know starting to write the ship a little bit for the program. But that fourth quarter is when everything changed. Early on in the quarter, Michigan State's punter dropped a snap, which ended up rolling back into the end zone recovered by Rutgers for a touchdown to make it 24-13. Defense then promptly forced a three and out, got the ball right back to the offense, and all of a sudden, Gavin Wimsatt and company um, had the ball down only two possessions with over 12 minutes left in the game. And then they went on just a hell of a drive. Um, it was a combination, really, of Gavin Wimsatt's arm and then some punishing, punishing runs by Kyle Monongai, who, once again, is Easily the most underrated and least talked about running back in the country. He is so talented, and he could start at any number of Power 5 schools. Um, but anyway, that led them to a 12-play. 73 yard touchdown drive and a two point conversion to make it a three point game. And then a perfectly executed pooch kick that hit the 22 yard line and bounced high in the air. Um, Thomas Amonqua ended up snatching it from Tyrell Henry. It was, you know, Tyrell Henry, I guess you could say, did make a mistake there, not trying to go for the ball, but it was, you know, it's raining. Hard to judge where exactly that ball is uh, landing. And then he made the decision to let it bounce, um, instead of trying to dive for it and potentially muff it. Um, but, that did not work out for him. Amonkwa got the ball back. Um, so Rutgers, in the blink of an eye, has the ball near the red zone, and then Kyle Manungai scored on the very next play. Michigan State went three and out after that, and then never saw the ball again. Game over. Just like in the blink of an eye, that 18-point lead from Michigan State just vanished. Um, so I'll start off with the Rutgers side of this game. And first and foremost, I'm seeing tremendous growth in Gavin Wimsett. And I think that's what I'm most excited about with this Rutgers team moving forward. He's just looking like a more and more confident passer. And he had some absolute dimes on saturday and i'm not exaggerating i mean he had some nfl level jaw-dropping throws in areas that really had no business getting completed he still definitely needs to improve his decision making and his ability to read defenses because at this point he is pretty much either a one read or scramble type quarterback but it's his first year as a starter and you know he's starting at Rutgers. you know this is kind of the level that you um have to be at But I think uh, the perfect example of where he's at right now as a quarterback is when Rutgers faced third and goal on the Michigan State four, down 11 with eight and a half minutes to go. This was the closing play of that 12-play 73-yard touchdown drive right before they got the pooch kick. Um, So they're in this situation, again, third down inside the five, down 11 with eight and a half minutes to go. They need to convert. I mean, I know you technically just need one score, but it felt like they really needed to score a touchdown. Um, So he had a play. He had trips bunched to the right of the line of scrimmage. Um, One guy runs a drag across the field to the left. Another runs a little curl close to the end zone. Um, Isaiah Washington runs a corner route and... That's who Gavin Wimsat was staring down the entire time, was uh, was Isaiah Washington on this corner route. And because he is just staring him down the entire play, four Michigan State defenders all see his eyes, all bite on that route, are, and are in the area. And that left their running back, um, Aaron Young, who went out in the flat wide open for a touchdown. There was not a guy near him. He, if he just dunks it to him, easy touchdown. Clear as day. Um, you could see it live. In fact, the the announcer was like, oh, he missed him, um, talking about Gavin Wimsatt to Aaron Young. Um, but you know what? Gavin Wimsatt doesn't see a thing, doesn't notice that Aaron Young is uh, completely wide open. And instead, he tries to force it into Isaiah Williams on a throw he probably should not have thrown. Um, but he manages to get it in there. He floats it over the defender in the back of the end zone in a place where only Isaiah Washington could catch the ball for an incredible touchdown that, I mean one of the best throws of the day. And he had a lot of really great throws. Um, and that just kind of explains where he is as a quarterback. He's definitely talented and his arm is definitely improving. It's just, you know, some of his decision-making and some of his ability to um, read defenses definitely has to improve, but I think it will because again, this is his first year as a starter and you know, they had a few drives that were kickstarted by big passing plays, but then stalled due to his misfires. So that's just kind of who he is right now. But at the very least, the way he's playing quarterback is a huge step up from where they were last year at the quarterback position. And that's the biggest reason, in my opinion, why Rutgers is five and two, uh, this year or so far. Um. And the defense, you know, once again, played so well. Their defensive line, for the most part, just manhandled Michigan State's offensive line. You know, penalties, a few big pass plays and turnovers by the offense um, are really what led to those 24 points being put up by Michigan State. Um, But it was just it was an incredible team win. And I think it's incredible for this program because I you know I thought that Rutgers was the better team for the majority of the game, despite them being down twenty four six going into the thir- fourth quarter. I didn't come away thinking like, "Oh man, Rutgers has been frauds all year long," or "Wow, Michigan State's definitely the more talented team." Watching the game, it still felt like Rutgers was the better team, despite them being down by eighteen. And I think that's the type of game um, that if you lose as a rare home favorite being Rutgers, it could have been devastating for them losing a team, losing a game where you're the better team, you're the home favorite and you let that game drop could have been devastating, especially for their chances to get to a a good bowl game now. Cause you know, they're past just getting to six wins. They're trying to get to, you know, a capital one bowl or something like that. Um, but you know, for Rutgers to just, keep chopping, and come out with this win, I think is a testament to the type of team Greg Shiano is building once again at Rutgers. And honestly, in a couple years, Rutgers could very well be a team that no one in the Big Ten wants to play. That's the kind of trajectory they're going on right now. Um, But as for Michigan State, that might have been the worst quarter of football maybe in their history i think definitely the worst quarter of football i've seen from them this century definitely one of their worst all-time and frankly a new low point for a program that has seen unprecedented success over the past 15 years or so um and now they are really really in the toilet i think you know part of it is Spartan fans I think have become a little bit spoiled because you know I think they're just kind of expecting that unsustainable success that they had under Mark Dantonio to continue into the NIL era and I think a lot of that being Michigan State being the little sister in their state it's you know that's a lot to ask but at the same time now, this is just a really, really bad situation and below, really, I mean, below the reasonable expectations Michigan State fans should have for their program. Um, you know, like I said, coming out of a bye, they could finally reset and try to start anew. And it looked like they did, whether the goal be to win out or just get to a bowl game or just win a single game, you expected them to come out with a different energy and they did. Um, and also hats off to Kaden Hauser because he looks solid for, you know, at least the first uh, few quarters. He was a confident thrower, a good scrambler. You know, he wasn't quite as fast as Noah Kim, but he just seems slippier, harder to bring down. Um, and just not being able to close out that 18 point lead, mainly due to two horrific special teams mistakes, um, is just gut-wrenching for the program. And this is gonna be a tough one to swallow. And what comes of it, how they play down the stretch, you know, how they show up this weekend against Michigan, it's gonna speak very loudly about the kind of leadership that they have in that program. Um But talking about Michigan State and Rutgers in this game, I thought it was kind of funny because I think this game was a, a perfect summary of where these two teams are headed, and it's almost like two ships passing in the night. Because Rutgers is an ascending program right now, and they have a very optimistic future. You know, seven, maybe even eight wins are in their sights this year. And I think that gives them momentum, heading into a gauntlet of schedule over the next few years. You obviously can't expect them to make a bowl game every single year in this next five-year stretch where they're playing some of the best teams in college football. But you figure Greg Shiano sticks around, continues this rebuild. If Rutgers can start owning New Jersey in recruiting, which is a very underrated state as far as talent goes... Um, and this is a big ask, you know, Rutgers to start keeping all the New Jersey talent in state, but if they're, if they're able to do that, I don't think, I mean, I think there's very good reason to believe that they can become what Michigan state has been in the past couple decades, you know, a perpetual bowl team with varying success, you know, they'll have the occasional sub 500 year, but also the occasional Cinderella year who crashes the playoff contends through the big 12, big 10, who, you know, with ex- The playoff expanding to 12 teams is definitely a much easier ask for them. And then, meanwhile, there is Michigan State, who is on just a downward spiral. They absolutely need to get this next hire right, or they will risk becoming what Rutgers has been for so long. Um, Just a laughing stock, an easy win for everyone on the Big Ten schedule, and really the bottom feeder of the Big Ten. So, I mean, they are in a very precarious place right now. Meanwhile, Rutgers is is an ascending program who I think has a very optimistic future, even in this new NIL era with the expanded Big Ten. Uh, if you're a Rutgers fan, it's a really good time to be a Rutgers fan. So, I mean, hats off to them for that comeback. And Michigan State fans, I, I, can't, I can't say anything else, but I'm sorry. That must have been a tough game to get through. Um, and now you get Michigan coming up. It's not going to get much easier. So, um, I guess all you can do right now is look towards the offseason. And like I've said so many times, just pray that you get this next hire right. So, again, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip the Big Ten helmet stickers this week um, just so we can get into some stuff that I think you guys will much prefer hearing and keeping it within a reasonable time. And the first thing I want to talk about moving outside the Big Ten is Washington. Um, You know, they faced their first real test of the season against Oregon. Everyone knew that they were good, and this win only confirms that they are legitimate national championship contenders. Um, Just, I mean... Michael Penix is just playing at an unbelievable level right now, um, and I'm as big of a fan of Michael Penix as I am any player in college football. He is so fun to watch and such an easy guy to root for. However, I have noticed some tendencies about this team that are making me a little bit uneasy about their ability to actually win a national championship, and the first one is the lack of a run game. And listen, I'm not recommending that they don't let Michael Penix go sling it. They easily have the most electric offense in college football right now. And letting Michael Penix throw it 40 plus times a game is 99 times out of 100 going to be a recipe for massive success offensively. But at some point in their path to a championship, whether it be during the regular season, the Pac 12 championship, the playoff, um, you know, When they play the best teams in college football on their route to a championship and they play the best defenses in the country, you got to figure at some point, everything in the past game won't quite click. You know, whether it's a few turnovers, maybe they just start slow, maybe they get out to a big lead and then they try to keep the pedal to the metal, but they misfire, go three out a couple times, don't burn any clock and allow their opponent to get back in the game, whatever it is, whatever situation it is. Um, there will be situations in the future where it will be useful to know that you can go run the ball. You can run the ball effectively even when the defense knows it's coming. And I just don't see that from Washington. I mean, they're barely averaging over 100 yards per game on the ground, which you know as a reminder for college football is low i know in the nfl averaging over 100 yards per game that's pretty good but um no they're in, you know bottom half of college football and they're 48th in the country in yards per carry so it just makes me concerned that should they be in a position where it's optimal to run the ball where it's in their best interest to burn some clock and gain some tough yardage on the ground um I'm concerned because I'm not sure they can do it. Whether, when, if that situation arise, arises, um, you know, Oregon, for example, they have a very, very balanced offense. If they need to run the ball, I know they can. Washington, I can't say that about. And so, I mean, that's definitely a concern of mine moving forward. And second, my, my second concern of theirs is the sloppy tackling that I noticed throughout the game. I mean, it happened on both sides, but mainly Washington. I mean, there were a lot of times where Ducks were just bouncing off three, four, even five defenders. And you know, granted, they got some great skill position players. I mean, those are hard guys to tackle, but it was a lot of shouldering, a lot of just poor form. It was a lot of just like, bad tackling on Washington's part. And like I said, they're bouncing off 3-4 defenders and gaining another 5, 10, 25 yards because of it. And you look at the great defenses in college football this year, like Michigan, Penn State, and Ohio State, and you look in the years past at the great defenses that we've seen, like Georgia last year. And if there's one, te- one thing that none of those teams are, it's a poor tackling team. I mean, those are all sure tackling defenses, and that's kind of what you need when you get into the playoff and you're going up against offenses that can score with you. Um, so those are two big concerns I have. And, you know, I've also seen comparisons about this Washington team to 2019 LSU. And I just have to say that that's crossing the line. And that is borderline sacrilegious. I mean, listen, I love this Washington team. I love Michael Penix. I love watching them play. And I really hope to see them emerge from the Pac-12. Um, but let's not forget that LSU team was more than just... Uh, Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, and Justin Jefferson. You know, remember they did have Clyde Edwards-Alaire, and he had a huge season that year, and, you know, he played so well that he fooled Kansas City into spending a first round pick on him. And even the defense, you know, they had guys like Patrick Queen, Derek Stingley, uh, Grant Delpit at safety. I mean, that LSU team had 14 players drafted in the 2020 draft. That was a record for any school in any draft. And listen, Michael Penix is special, and if you want to name him and his receivers in the same breath as Burrow and his receivers, you probably can. I don't have a problem with that, but that LSU team was so much more than just Joe Burrow, Justin Jefferson, and Jamar Chase. This Washington roster is not going to have 14 NFL draft picks in this upcoming draft. I mean, this is just not 2019 LSU. Um lsu i mean that lsu team didn't play in a game as close as washington oregon was and i think you line up washington versus oregon 10 times i think they go five and five and the home team probably wins every game um but you remember lsu blew out just about every team they played um so i like i said love washington this is not 2019 lsu though um But, you know, as I'm going through these concerns I have for Washington, I am just playing devil's advocate. And I'm just saying, if they are going to lose a game, it's going to be one of those two reasons either their lack of a run game or their sloppy tackling. But, like I've said from the beginning of the season, even in the preseason, like there is no dominant team this year. You don't have to be perfect to win the championship this year. So, Washington could very well run the table and go win a national championship with, you know, a suboptimal run game and with some sloppy tackling. They, Michael Penix can go through the ball 40, 50 times a game, have one of the most prolific seasons in college football history, and win a national championship that's on the table i'm just playing devil's advocate this is not a perfect team and there are a few things that concern uh me about their their chances to win a national championship this year before i get into previewing the week eight slate of games in the big 10 and giving you my five big 10 betting locks i feel like i gotta touch on georgia because i really felt like this was finally the week where the ap poll and the coaches poll were gonna wake up and bump them down from number one um But they're still sitting there at number one, and I, for the life of me, cannot understand why. Um, I mean, they have, Georgia has one win against the Power Five team with a winning record right now, and that was Kentucky, who just got handled at home by Missouri. Um, Georgia's average margin of victory, uh, versus Power Five opponents is 18 points a game, which, you know, is good. They're beating Power Five teams for the most part pretty handedly, but they're not dominating them by any means. Um, and Georgia's, uh, the combined record of the Division 1 opponents that Georgia has played this year is 15 and 26. That's a 37% winning percentage. I mean, Georgia just has not played anyone. Um, and on top of that, Brock Bowers now is hurt. He's expected to be out the rest of the regular season. He may return for an SEC championship or a playoff run, but there's no guarantee that he'll return the season at all. I mean, he is a all-American, a two-time champion, a guaranteed first-round pick. I'm not sure that he would risk all of that to come back and try to win a third championship. Um, feel like that would be the irresponsible choice as far as his career goes, but I'm not Brock Bowers. I'm not gonna try to predict something I know nothing about. Um, But the fact of the matter is, Brock Bowers is out for the rest of the regular season. He's been their only consistent receiving threat. Um, And this is more about them just not playing anyone. I mean, Michigan hasn't played anyone either. But at least Michigan has been dominating teams like you would expect. If Georgia was beating teams like Michigan is, I'd have no problem with them at number one but they aren't. And then meanwhile, you have Ohio state, Oklahoma, Washington, and Florida state who all have signature wins at this point and have a resume far better than Georgia. I mean, all five of those teams, I think Michigan, Ohio state, Oklahoma, Washington, and Florida state, all of them have a case for number one. I don't care how you order them. You can order those five teams, however you want. But I feel like those are the clear top five teams in the country right now. And I don't really feel like it's up to up for debate. Um, and, you know, you might be sitting there, saying there, but hey, Georgia has the most blue chip recruits on their roster in college football. They're the two-time defending national champion, and they're undefeated this year. Um, you know, they haven't done anything to lose the number one spot, and I just think, you know, ranking teams based off of last year's results and, and how teams recruit is fine when you're putting together a preseason poll. I mean, because how else are you supposed to project who's going to be good this year? You look at recruiting, and you look at last year's results, but we're over halfway through the season now. Um, and all of that, all of the recruiting stuff, everything from 2021, 2022, all of that should have been thrown out the window a long time ago. We're more than halfway through the season. We should only be looking at what these teams have done on the field this season. Um And I just I can't believe that needs to be said, but the only explanation for why Georgia is You know, not only number one in the country right now, but still receiving 43 first place votes in the AP poll. That's more than two thirds of the votes. Um, the only reason I can see is these people are not watching the games. They're not watching all the teams play and they're just judging Georgia based on what they, what they saw last year from them. They're just judging Georgia based on, um, their brand name. And it's just irresponsible. It's very irresponsible by the AP poll voters and it's making me sick. Um, you know what? Can Georgia go 13-0? Most definitely. You know, I think they're probably pretty likely to go 13-0. And if they do, would they be deserving of number one? Sure. No problem. Because at that point, they would have had wins over Missouri, Tennessee, likely Alabama, and then in the SEC championship. Um, so, I mean, certain, certainly they can get to number one. They can get to a point where I'll have no problem giving them the number one spot. But until we actually see Georgia beat a good team and look good doing it, I'm not ranking them number one. They have not earned it. Simple as that. And that's not debatable. And if you find yourselves arguing that Georgia should be number one, that's SEC favoritism speaking. Because any objective viewer without a dog in the fight wouldn't pick Georgia number one. They don't have a marquee win. They have not been dominant. And their best player just went down with injury. So uh, try to explain to me how they are more deserving than Michigan, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Washington, or Florida State for the number one spot. Um, I would love to hear it. I would love to hear the arguments because it doesn't make any sense to me. I know I talk all the time about how the AP poll doesn't matter, and I should not let myself get this worked up over this stupid poll, but it drives the national narrative. And the national narrative now is that Georgia is still the unquestioned best team in college football, and they are just absolutely not. Um, and I can only hope that that gets proved right over the next few weeks with, if, if they end up losing. Cause if they play the way they have, they will drop a game at some point. And I can't wait to see that when it happens. So next, I can get into previewing the week eight slated games around the Big Ten. We have six games in the Big Ten coming up this weekend. I'm going talk about five of them here and give you my five Big Ten betting locks along with those. One game I'm not going to talk about in today's episode is Rutgers Indiana. Um, Rutgers is five point favorites in that game. Indiana coming off of a bye, so there's a chance for that to be close. But you can check out my official pick for that game um, on our Big Ten betting guide, which releases tomorrow morning on Thursday. Uh, but to kick things off for Week Eight, I'm going to look at that you know game of the weekend across all of college football. Ohio State hosting Penn State, number three versus number seven, and let's spend a little bit time kind of breaking down this game first before I give you my pick. Um so first of all when Penn State has the ball it's definitely no secret at this point in the season that this is not an offense that's producing big plays. Um they're one of the worst teams in the country in terms of generating 20 plus yard plays. Drew Aller is just one of 11 on the year on pass attempts of 20 plus yards down the field and I don't know which metric is more alarming the fact that he's only attempted 11 passes 20 yards downfield or the fact that he's only completed one of those. Um Drew Aller also has the lowest air yards per pass attempt in the power five, and they are just 43rd nationally in total offense, 80th in in yards per play. Despite that, they are still top 10 in the country in scoring, um, in scoring offense, which is a testament to their defense and their special teams. Um, but anyway, I feel like there is a chance that Penn State's been kind of playing things close to the vest and um, they've been holding back in their play calling are going to let it loose against Ohio State. There's definitely a chance of that, but at the same time, I have a really hard time believing um, that that's the case because if they were going to go try to air it out against one of the top five pass defenses in the country on the road you you'd figure they would have gotten some reps in before this game and they haven't i mean even against umass they really did not push the ball that downfield very much so i can't imagine they're going into the biggest matchup of the season so far with an entirely new game plan that they haven't executed before so when penn state has the ball i'm expecting to them to follow a trend that we've set, seen all season. They're averaging 45 rush attempts um, per game compared to just 32 pass attempts. And that kind of is in line with what I'm expecting in this game. They're going to try to dink and dunk their way down the field, run the ball a lot. They probably won't get many explosive runs, but they should consistently be able to pick up positive yardage. Um, and I think they're going to try to possess the ball for 40 minutes and keep that Ohio State offense on the sideline. And then on the flip side, I think Ohio, I expect Ohio State to run a similarly conservative approach. Definitely not to Penn State's extent. Ohio State, as they always do, they will take their shots down the field. Um, and they will go no huddle and, you know, plenty of situations and try to use some tempo to keep that defense off guard. But. You know, I expect it to be a little bit conservative because against this Penn State defense, the worst thing Ohio State can do offensively is you know give up the ball in their own territory due to turnovers or have quick three and outs with like three incomplete passes that gives Penn State the ball back with only a minute going off the clock. Because um, you know, listen, I mean Notre Dame is a great defense and they gave Ohio State everything they could handle, but. Few defenses in the entire country are more opportunistic than Penn State. They're averaging more than two forced turnovers per game, and that's a big reason why I mentioned before they are actually fifth nationally in scoring offense, um, despite averaging only around 425 yards per game. Um, So, this is an entirely different challenge. You know, some of those passes from Kyle McCord earlier in the season that were almost picked off, they will be interceptions against Penn State. They're that kind of defense. Um, So, what are the keys to the game? When Penn State has the ball, it's going to come down to third downs because I mean, Nick Singleton and Katron Allen are talented enough for Penn state to get positive yards consistently on the ground. Like I said, I don't expect this offensive line to produce huge holes um, and allow Nick Singleton and Katron Allen break off 15, 20 yard runs. And I don't expect this offensive line to really get a push. Um, like we saw Notre Dame do, um, in the second half against Ohio state, because Ohio state has, in my opinion, the toughest interior defensive line in the entire country and their safeties are as good as any in run support. um, So I think because of that, I mean, Penn State's going to run that conservative approach. And I think because of that, they're going to find themselves in a lot of third downs, not necessarily a lot of third and longs, not a lot of third and obvious passing down situations. Um, but, you know, a lot of maybe third and twos, threes, fours, fives, and, you know, third either short and third or, or medium. And listen, Drew Aller is a good decision maker and he can get the ball out quickly to avoid sacks. Um, Uh, But it's gonna, I mean, their success offensively is gonna come down to how, how many third downs can they convert? Um, cause this Ohio State defense, it's predicated on forcing teams into third downs. On first and second down, this Ohio State defense is going to sit back, and rally to the football and not allow any big plays. And like I said, they're going to force Penn State into a lot of like third and threes, third and fives. So for Penn State, it's going to come down to can Drew Aller deliver on third down? Will his legs become a factor? Because if he's willing and able to scramble, that'll be a huge difference maker and probably a big reason why penn state could pull off the upset um and also will penn state be aggressive on fourth downs because you know if they have a a third and five you know they they run a little you know crossing route that gets close to the um first down marker are they going to be willing to go for it on fourth and inches in their own territory or maybe fourth and two around midfield um because i expect a lot of bend don't break from this ohio state defense i don't foresee a lot of three and outs from penn state but i also don't foresee a lot of Um, instances of them driving the length of the field. Um, They're going to have probably, I think, a lot of field goal attempts or a lot of fourth down attempts. Maybe both. I mean, because I think they're going to be able to move the ball, but I don't see them getting into the end zone very much, and I don't see them having a ton of success in the red zone. Um, So when Penn State has the ball, it's going to come down to third and fourth down. How many can they convert? Because if they're converting third down at over 50%, there's a really, really good chance Penn State wins this game. But if uh, if Ohio State wins the battle on third down and um, forces them into fourth downs that Penn State is not willing to go for, um, it's just more opportunities for that Ohio State offense and could very well um, make this an Ohio State blowout. And then on the flip side, when Ohio State um, has the ball, I think their success is going to be predicated on the run game. You know, how much of this run game can help take the pressure off of kyle mccord's shoulders um because listen ohio state's going to get some big plays in the passing game that's a given but if they are stonewalled in the run game like they were against maryland and forced into a lot of third and longs they're not going to be converting a whole lot of those against this penn state defense um you know so if they're forced to abandon the run game and have kyle mccord throw the ball 40 plus times i'm sure we're going to see some turnovers from this offense that we have not seen so far this season um And that's how Penn State's been able to put up so many points is forcing those turnovers. So if Ohio State can't run the ball, the likelihood that they turn the ball over is skyrockets. So it's all going to come down to this offensive line and their run blocking and how they, you know, form an edge in this run game. You know, if, can they have a truly balanced attack against Penn State? Um, if so, you know, if Ohio State comes out and is, you know, running the ball for over four yards of carry and consistently facing, you know, second and four, five, six. Um, it's going to keep Penn State's defense off balance. It's going to open up a lot more shots downfield. And I think that's kind of a way that Ohio State could win with relative ease. But if Penn State contains this run game and keeps in, does so without needing to put six or seven guys on the line of scrimmage, it's going to be a really long day for this Ohio State offense. So it's all going to come down to that offensive line and the run game. Um, my prediction for this game, I think Ohio State is going to start off slowly on offense, probably find themselves in an early deficit. But I think as the game goes on, they will start to wear on that Penn State defense. Um, a Penn State defense that has not seen anything close to Ohio State offensively. And I think by the third quarter, I think Ohio State will start to see some success in that run game, and it will help to open up the offense. Um, and I think... There will come a point in the game where they get into a rhythm and it becomes apparent that Penn State needs to go on a couple touchdown drives, maybe the length of the field, and that's just something I'm not confident Penn State can do because I think, you know, those big touchdown plays are off the table with this um offense, especially against a defense that has made it a priority this season to not give up any big plays. So they're going to have to go on, you know, 12-play t- drives the length of the field in order to score a touchdown at some point, and that's just not something I really think they can do. So I'm thinking this game is somewhere around 13-6 Penn State at halftime, but Ohio State start cl- starts clicking in the second half, defense slowly suffocates Penn State's offense, Ohio State wins 23-16. That's my prediction, but that being said, I'm not terribly confident in Ohio State covering that four and a half point spread, because um, so this could very well come down to a field goal, and honestly, Ohio State could very well lose if their offensive line struggles or Kyle McCord turns the ball over, and both are plausible against this Penn State defense. So... Um, but at the same time, if there is going to be a blowout in Columbus on Saturday, it's going to be Ohio State blowing out Penn State, but... That being said, I don't see a, a blowout coming in this game. This is likely a tight game down to the wire, so I want to avoid the spread unless it goes back down below three points, and I don't see that happening. Um, it is worth mentioning that 85% of bets are on Penn State in this game, and the line hasn't gone any lower than four. So that tells me that Vegas is confident in Ohio State, and I'm not one to bet on Vegas unless I'm a 1,000% confident, and I'm not in this case. So... Um, I'm generally staying away from the spread in this game. Instead, I love the under at 46 and a half. This is, game is going to play out very similarly to Ohio State Notre Dame. Two of the best defenses in the country and an offense that does not have explosive plays. Like I've said ten times so far in this segment, um, Penn State's going to try to control the clock. Ohio State's likely to get off a slow start. Sl- uh, to a slow start offensively like they do so often. Um, So I think that under hits relatively easily. I would take the under all the way down to 45. um, And that is my first Big Ten lock of Week 8. So I should be able to get through these next four locks a little bit quicker. Next game up is Michigan, Michigan State um in East Lansing the rivalry game of the weekend and it's a real shame because like I said earlier I felt like Michigan State really had come out with a different energy off their bye week but that fourth quarter that meltdown that they suffered against Rutgers I think squashed any momentum they could have taken into this game um I genuinely don't think there's a position group in which Michigan State has the advantage on Saturday and I don't remember the last time that was the case in this rivalry that's been really close over the past couple decades um And I don't think this is a game where, you know, it's a rivalry game, weird things happen, and the the, uh, playing field is leveled to some extent. Um, At the end of the day, Michigan State just lacks the talent and, in my opinion, the leadership to make this happen. Um, Michigan is just so far and away the better team. Um, And you know they're going to take this game seriously based off of what happened last year Um, at the end of the game. You remember the brawl in the tunnel at Michigan Stadium. Um, And despite Michigan State's record, you know, despite the disparity between these two teams, I think Michigan's going to want to come out and beat them by 50. And given the, like I said, the talent and coaching disparity between the two, these two squads, I think they can do that. Michigan is beating Big Ten opponents by over 37 points per game uh, so far this year. And honestly, I'd like this line a lot more if it somehow fell to 23.5 or 24, even. I feel like that's kind of the magic number. That's the number they beat Rutgers by. But nonetheless, I'm taking Michigan to cover minus 24.5 on the road against Michigan State. They They're simply the superior team, and I expect them to play like it on Saturday. And my third lock will come from perhaps the ugliest game we'll see in the Big Ten this season, Minnesota against Iowa, two teams that are ranked 121st and dead last in the country in total offense and are each in the bottom 20 in the country in points per game. And in my opinion, two of the worst quarterbacks in the power five and Deacon Hill and Ethan callie Manis. So in order for Iowa to pull off this upset and get back into the race for the West, which is very doable if they end up uh, getting this win, but they're going to have to defend the run better, plain and simple. They're giving up 140 yards per game on the ground at over four and a half yards per carry. And you know, Iowa is going to run the ball all day. Um... And they've actually been fairly effective on the ground over the past couple games. Caleb Johnson had a huge game a couple weeks ago, got injured. LaShawn Williams stepped up this past weekend, and now Caleb Johnson is expected back. Um, so I think Minnesota's going to have to stack eight guys in the box and be like, hey, if you want to move the ball at all, you're going to have to throw it. And you know that Iowa won't. And on the flip side, I think Minnesota's going to have to copy that off that strategy um, offensively. Because like I said a, a few weeks ago, Minnesota has to do everything possible to get this game out of, um, Ethan Callahan Manis's hands because he is just not the quarterback. He's not ready to really lead this team with his arm, um, as we've seen. And they followed that finally in their last game. And much like Iowa does with Deacon Hill now, they're just gonna have to run, run, run the ball all day, really. Um, this isn't the game to come out and try anything fancy or, you know, take some big shots. They have to be conservative, try to win the field position battle, which is a big test against Iowa, and just hope that Iowa's the ones that, make the mistakes on offense not you um so i was a three and a half point favorite in this game line hasn't moved much at all this week and i would honestly take that if iowa falls to two and a half but i don't foresee much movement and you know we saw how illinois seemed to turn it around after a long week and look like a different team so maybe minnesota can do the same thing coming off the bye i would not put that past them and you know this iowa team is definitely vulnerable so for that reason i'm staying away from the spread unless it drops um, instead, I'm going to go with the under, even though it's at an abysmal 32 and a half. Last week, Iowa, Wisconsin, that total was at uh, 24, uh, 24 points. Um, so, even without Tanner Mordecai, Minnesota's offense is worse than Wisconsin, and. The only way this overhits is if the Gophers come out soft on defense and allow Iowa to run the ball all over them, and this could be a game where Iowa scores like 24-plus points, and that would put that over-under at risk, but that's really the only scenario I see in my mind that this could get over 32-and-a-half, and And I think the safe bet would be both offenses struggle to score, and this game ends in like the 12-to-6 range, Um and that's, you know, one score versus the other, not the total. So I could see Minnesota, uh, Iowa winning like 12-9, to 12-6, something like that. Um, so I'm definitely confident in the under there. My third lock comes from the revenge game of the weekend. Um, Illinois taking on Brett Bielemo's old squad, Wisconsin. And like I said, Illinois was a different team this past Saturday, and I think that's the team we're going to see moving forward. Meanwhile, Wisconsin's at a crossroads coming off that ugly loss against Iowa um, and having to go to battle with the unproven Braden Lockett quarterback, and he didn't do a whole lot on Saturday to inspire much confidence. And you know the secret with Wisconsin at this point. If they run the ball, if they can run the ball, they're going to win. If you, you can stop it, you have a really good chance of beating them because they're averaging less than 100 yards per game in their two losses. And I think Brett Bielema is going to let this defensive front loose and do anything possible to try to make Braden Locke beat them with this, with their arm. And based off what I saw against Iowa, this coaching staff is going to be willing to let Braden Locke throw the ball. And I think that could mean Wisconsin turns the ball over a bit. Um, Illinois linebackers, you know, Dylan Rosiek and Seth Coleman, they're finally coming on strong. And Keith Randolph, who was a surprise scratch last week, there's optimism he's going to return to action and i'm just not sure that this wisconsin offensive line is really capable of carving paths for braylon allen when there's no real threat of the passing game um so i like illinois to cover at plus two and a half um i might even end up Picking them to pull off the upset at home. Brett Bielema definitely wants to win this game, and Illinois has so much, as much momentum as they've had all season long, and Wisconsin's kind of dead in the mud right now, it feels like. So I feel like they'll be juiced and ready to go for this game, and I can't necessarily say the same thing about Wisconsin. So I'm going to go with Illinois to cover plus two and a half against Wisconsin. And my fifth and final lock, I kind of said my last one was my third. That was my fourth. This is my final one. It's going to come from Northwestern versus versus Nebraska. Not a game that many people expected to have any really Big Ten West implications coming into the year. But, I mean, we're more than halfway through the season and every team is still very much in the thick of the race. Um, so every Big Ten West matchup at this point is going to affect who wins that. Uh, division and this is a tricky one to pick because i definitely love the direction nebraska's heading in their win against illinois last week was huge they're trending in the right direction and i look at their schedule and i think a seven and five season is very possible Uh, that being said i just don't think this is a team either talent wise or scheme wise that's really capable of blowing teams out at this point because they're susceptible to turnovers they run the ball into the ground which means you know not a, a a lot of opportunities for big plays and putting up a lot of points and they're starting to get a little beat up on both sides of the ball with injuries. For Northwestern, you know, none of their wins have been pretty, but this is a scrappy team. They've come back from a huge deficit before. There even if Nebraska jumps out to an early lead, you know, Northwestern's going to keep fighting. Ben Bryant, their quarterback has played better in the past 3 weeks and he's helped this offense open up a little bit. So, I think the key for Northwestern, as much as Nebraska likes to run the ball, Northwestern is going to have to eat up some clock and limit possessions in this game as much as possible. And, you know, they don't have to score on every drive, but I think they just need to get a first down or two and keep the defense rested, keep them off the field, try to pin Nebraska deep, and then win that field position battle, and make Nebraska go the length of the field. Um... I think Northwestern coming off a buy can keep this close. I'd wait until closer to game time with this line because I have a feeling it's going to go up as people um, bet on Nebraska because that's the way the the money is trending right now. Um, So if I can somehow get that line up to plus 13, I would definitely jump on it. But either way, I'm taking Northwestern to cover. Um, not because I don't believe in the trajectory of this Nebraska team, but I just don't think that there is much disparity between any of the teams in the Big Ten West right now. So honestly, I would take um, anyone at nearly a two touchdown underdog um, in the Big Ten West. And that'll do it on this week's episode of the Floor Slap Podcast. As always, really appreciate anyone and everyone that's listening along. Hope you have a great rest of the week and have an opportunity to sit back and enjoy another great Saturday of college football. We only have so many more, so make sure you cherish each and every one. Follow us on Twitter at The Floor Slap and go to our website, thefloorslap.com, for more articles and content. As always, I've been your host, Sean. Have a great week, and I will catch you here next time.